0: Uh, well, welcome today. This January, we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be a great series. Now, I don't know if you have, uh, are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, but it is this Old Testament book written by uh, someone who simply identifies themselves as the teacher. There are different theories about who that is, but, but this particular person, he just writes, uh, he takes this fascinating look into human life. He delves sort of into every aspect of human existence that is so important to us. He talks about wisdom and pleasure and money and work and, and riches and friendship and love and death and, and the folly of it all. And along the way, he makes these profound observations, and he comes up with these challenges along the way, and he just kind of sits back and he examines all of life in light of what he has seen and observed. But at the very end, at the very end, he sort of steps back and he examines it all, and he, he comes to a conclusion. He, he asks himself, you know, what does it all mean? What, what, what can we conclude from everything that we've seen and observed? And this is what he says. Now, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of mankind. He says, he says, this is the conclusion. This is what I draw from all that I have seen and heard and understood. Now, we've been studying the book of Romans this fall, and today we come to the end, not of the book of Romans, but to a, the end of a major section of the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul is going to do the exact same thing. He's going to step back from all that he has written and explained uh, about the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to kind of come to the conclusion of the matter. He's going to say, so what what can we draw from all that we have learned? What what can we draw from all that we have seen here? And so let me remind you what Paul wrote, what he said. You have to remember that he began this letter by, you know, sending some greetings to some of the people in Rome and by making some opening comments But then he lays out his thesis at the very beginning. In chapter 1, verse 16, he writes this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith in a world that looked down upon Christians for what they held, in a world that kind of scoffed and mocked at them, the Apostle Paul says, oh no, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to change people's lives. It is the power that will change and transform your life and my life, he says, and it's based upon faith. It's through faith that we receive the righteousness of God in our lives. And then he goes on and he begins to explain the message of the gospel. And here's here's what he begins. At the end of Romans chapter one, he says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He explains that those who turn their back on God, those who disobey him, those who mock his commands, those who live in open rebellion against him, will receive the wrath of God, the punishment for their rebellion against him. But then in chapter 2, in chapter 2, he starts by saying to those who are religious, those who, who you know, think they're better than others because they don't do what all the pagans do. Here, here's how he begins. He says to the religious crowd, he says, you therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. The apostle says, oh, it's not just the pagans who are sinners. It's the religious crowd as well. It's not just those who turn their back on God. It's those who think that they are doing life so good, that God should be so pleased. They too are sinners. In fact, in chapter 3, he does sort of this survey of the Bible and what it says and, and, and what has happened. And he comes to this conclusion Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference between the religious crowd and the non-religious crowd. Those who have tried hard and those who haven't tried at all. We are all sinners before God. We have all fallen short of his glory. We are, n- none of us are innocent before God, he says. And then, and then he gets to the very heart of the gospel. Here's what he says next. But... All are justified freely. All are made right before God freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to to be received by faith. He says, but God made a way for us to be right, even though we were all sinners. And he did it by sending his own son to suffer and to die for our sins in our place to take the punishment that was due for us upon himself. And we can have a right relationship with God through faith. But that raises a question then. Because there are many people in Paul's day, in our day, who say, actually, I don't have to worry about all the religious stuff. I don't have to worry about, you know, following Jesus because I am a good person. And when I stand before heaven, if there's a God, uh, before God if, and in heaven, if he's, he exists, I'll just tell him I was a good person. I did good things. And so the Apostle Paul wants to clarify next that that doesn't really work that way. And he uses Abraham as an example. I mean, Abraham, the father of of the Jewish nation, the man who was filled with all kinds of faith, he says, look, even Abraham wasn't good enough to to be right with God by his actions. Here's what he writes in in chapter four. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by his works, by doing good things, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, the reason that Abraham was right before God was because of his faith, not his works, because he trusted in what God, who God was and what God would do. And the same is true for us. It's the foundation of our being justified, being made right before God is through faith and not by doing good things. It's the only way we can be right with God. But when we do that, then we enter into a rich relationship with God. That's what he explains in the next chapter. In chapter 5, he says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful thing. God is no longer at war with us. We're at peace with him. Then in chapter 6, he goes on to explain this, that, that, that because of our faith in God, Because of what he has done in us, he is making us new. He is changing us. He is transforming how we live our lives. Chapter 6 begins this way. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so the grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have new life. He says, oh. Oh, because of what Jesus has done for us. We live this new life. A different kind of life. But then, Paul wrestles with the fact that we still struggle with sin. In chapter 7, he says this, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I seek another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He says, ah, I still have this battle. I still have this struggle against sin. But then in chapter 8, the one that we've been looking at just recently says, yes, but, but God has granted each of us who follow after him to have the Spirit of God come and live and dwell in us, to grant us the strength to live and to do what he calls us to do, to be free from the power of sin in our life, to give us peace, to enable us to have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God, to to cause us to be adopted into his family, to cause us to be heirs with Jesus, and heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus, to walk with us even through the deepest, hardest times of our life. Paul says this is the message of the gospel. We were sinners, that Jesus paid the price for our sins, that he's changing our life. And even as we wrestle with sin, God is at work in our hearts and our lives. He's beautiful and brilliant and amazing. And now Paul looks at the whole gospel that he's laid out over these past eight chapters and he steps back and here's what he says. What shall we say in response to these things? What shall we conclude so what do we take away from all that we now see and understand from the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? What, where, should, where should we go from here? What, what should we understand? And here's the conclusion that he comes to. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. God is for you. God is for you. God is not against you. He is for you. In fact, he's going to ask now five rhetorical questions to drive that point home. And the first is this, Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, he says this. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you might look around and say, well, actually, it seems like there's an awful lot of uh, of fairly formidable foes against us. I mean, we live in a culture that seems to be turning fairly rapidly against all things Christian, Christian values and, and anything really related to it. And if you, if you read the news, the secular news, and even if you read sort of the news in the Christian world, it's a lot of negative news. It's lot, you know, fewer people going to church, less young people choosing to follow Jesus, churches closing down, hardening attitudes towards Christianity and, and anything to do with it. And powerful forces that are, that are leading in a different direction, in another direction, far from what we would believe or stand for. And you know, if you read that, it's possible to become discouraged. It's possible to become fearful, to believe that it's unfair, to become defensive. But what we're experiencing now, I mean, this is nothing new for the followers of Jesus. Jesus. In fact, what we have experienced in the Western world over the past several hundred years, the kind of peace and acceptance that Christianity has had within the broader culture, is really an anomaly. It's a rarity within the history of Christianity and really around the world today. It certainly would have been a foreign idea to the readers uh, of the book of Romans when Paul first wrote it. People of God have always faced opposition and pressure and sometimes outright persecution. So we shouldn't be surprised by what we're seeing, nor should we be alarmed, nor discouraged. Because if you understand the gospel, you understand that God is for us. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? The writer of Psalms, Psalm chapter two, has the same question. He says this, he looks around at all the, 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 the big things happening in the world. He says, why do the nations conspire? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. He says, why would they do that? Here's what he he writes next. He says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who do they think they are? You remember the Assyrians, right? The Assyrian Empire? No, no. Huh. The Assyrian Empire was one of the greatest Civilizations of the ancient world. In fact, the Syrian empires were the sort of leading primary civilization from about the year 2300 to the year 600 BCE, before Christ. Which meant that they ruled the ancient world for almost 1700 years. And They were the most sophisticated, most powerful. So they, were the, they were the superpower of their day. Which is fascinating, because if you think of of Western culture, if you were to say that, you know, Western civilization kind of got its birth, the modern part of it, at, at the Renaissance, then our civilization is only 600 years old, which makes the Assyrian civilization three times longer than our current civilization. And yet today, nobody knows hardly anything about it. It simply disappeared off the map. And not just the Assyrian Empire, same with the Babylonians and the Romans and the Holy Roman Empire and the Mongols. And I mean, the list could go on and on. All of them great and powerful civilizations. All of them the superpowers of their day. All of them gone. But God remains on the throne. He laughs at those who set themselves up against him. His plans and his purposes never fail. He reigns sovereign over all. So if he is for us, then who can be against us? Which means that we need to stop worrying about all the, all the changes going on. We, we need to stop sort of fretting and, and being discouraged and fearful and angry. Let's not retreat back into a little corner and, and kind of whimper and 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 be, you know, and lament all the things happening in the world around us. No, no, no. Let's go forward with a confidence. Let's engage the world around us. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because if God is for us, who could be against us? That's the first point that Paul wants to make. Here's the second question that he asks. In verse 32, he goes on to say this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Second question. If God gave His own Son for us, how will He not also supply all of our other needs? I mean, God did not give us eight steps to enlightenment. God didn't give us 613 rules to follow in order to be right with Him. God didn't give us five pillars to practice. He didn't give us a bunch of moral teachings to try to follow in our own strength. No, he gave us his own son. There's no greater gift than that. There's nothing more precious than something like that. And he gave it so we could be in a relationship with him. That's lavish. I mean, that's above and beyond. It's wildly generous. And if God is willing to do for that, that for us, will he not then supply for us all of our other needs according to his glory, not all of our other wants, not all of our other wishes, not everything in the time and the way that we want. But he will care for you. Why? Because he was willing to give his own son. It's the most precious gift he could possibly give. There's a second point that Paul's trying to drive home. And that's this, that God is for you. God is for you. You can have utter confidence in him. He's not stingy. He's not tight-fisted. When you ask him to do something, it's not like he looks at you and says, well, you know what? If you'd only been more faithful at going to church. Oh, if only you had prayed more. If only you'd actually studied your Bible. I mean, he's, that's not him. He gave his own son for you. Of course, he's happy to give you the other things that you need in your life. God is for you. He's never against you. It's the second thing. Paul points. Here's the third question that he asks you. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. You know who brings charges against you and me? Satan, the devil. The book of Revelation tells us that he is the accuser of the brothers and sisters, of the, of the saints, of the believers. And he accuses us before God day and night. And you know he has good reason to. You know why? Because even after all that God has done for us, We still rebel against him. We still do things against his holy nature. We still sin in all kinds of ways. And so Satan has good reason to accuse us. And we cannot defend ourselves in any way. Why? Because we know that we've done those things. So who defends us before God? God does. God justifies us. God points to what his son Jesus has done for us on the cross now, why would God do that? What, why does God do that? I mean, here's the point. The, the, the pattern that Paul is getting at, and, and you see it again and again, here's why, because God is for us. He's not against us. He's for us. Next question. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know, if the world puts pressure upon us, and if Satan and the devil, Satan and the devil, if he accuses us, then often the condemnation that comes into our own world, into our life, comes from ourselves. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are some times when I just think to myself, I think, John, I can't believe you did that. You're so stupid. You're so dumb. You're, you're such a loser. I mean, how could you do something like that? I just feel all this condemnation in my life, and and maybe you've had those same kind of thoughts. Maybe they come from your head. Maybe they come from someone else who has said things to you that just rattle around in your head. You know, someone that you love, somebody that you that you that you respected, said, you know, you were a mistake. No one ever really wanted you. Or they say you're a loser. Or you will never you will never make it. No one wants you. No no one loves you. I mean, those things, they rattle in your head and they condemn you. And there have been times when I have failed to live the way that Jesus calls me to. When I sin again. When I don't live to to what he calls me to. And sometimes I just think to myself, I am not a good Christian. And there have been times where I've thought, "I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I mean, Uh, is this this qualified to be a a Christian? And maybe you felt that same way as well. Here's the thing that you need to understand. You, You didn't choose God. He chose you. That's what Paul says just before this passage. God foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. This is the good news of the gospel. He did it all. In God's eyes, you are not stupid. In his eyes, you're not a loser. You're not a mistake or unwanted or unloved. He chose you. He chose you. You know, uh, a number of years ago, we had a a lady in our community group, just such a lovely lady. Um, But she told us that when she was in her in her really early teens, I think, she said that her mother utterly rejected her and her sister. She simply said, I want nothing to do with you. I, I, I never want to see you again. You can imagine the kind of pain and, and hurt that caused her. And she said, she told us then, it, when she was in our community group, she was now in her mid-20s. She said uh, that she had been earlier that week in the grocery store with her brand new baby, whom her mother had never met. She hadn't seen her mother for years. And she was... Going in the grocery store, she was shopping and putting things in her cart, and she looked up and she saw her mother at the end of the aisle. And her mother saw her, and her mother turned around and and headed away as quickly as she could. She wouldn't even see her own daughter or her granddaughter. Incredibly painful experience for, for her. But God would never do that. God would never do that. In fact, he does the opposite. He chooses you. He brings you into his family. He gives his son for you. You see, God, God is for you. And therefore, therefore, there's no condemnation for you. And he doesn't, and your salvation doesn't depend upon what you do. It's not based on whether you are a good enough Christian. If you do it right, it's based on what God has done for you. So there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Why? Here again is what the apostle Paul's driving. Because God is for you. Because he's for you. He did it all. One more question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he starts by listing. These things, he says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. You know, all of those things, they happen to Christians, right? To good Christians. To Bible-believing, praying, living out their life for Jesus kind of Christians. And sometimes when those happens, we're tempted to wonder, God, have you abandoned us? I mean, really, is this? is this, I mean... You know what? Where are you in all of this? It's what Paul is referencing when he quotes the next line. It comes from, from uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 44. It says this, For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The writer of the Psalms feels that God has abandoned him. In fact, if you go back and read the Psalm, he explains that he explains. he's telling God, he said, we're doing everything right. We're not abandoning you, God. We're living by what you call us to. And yet you still, you know, these hard things are happening in our life. It feels like we're sheep to the slaughter, that you just don't care. But Paul sees it exactly the opposite way. He says, because of the death of Jesus and then his resurrection, because of the great victory that comes out of that, when we experience hardships, when we experience difficulties in our life, it's not any way suggested suggest that God doesn't love us. It doesn't come between God's love for us at all. Rather, it, leads, it, it shows us that God is leading to a great victory. And that's what he says next. He says this, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now that phrase, more than conquerors, I mean, in Greek, it's only one word. It's the a word a hypernikon. And you can hear the, the prefects are hyper, super conquerors. Let me explain what Paul is getting at there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the beloved Green Bay Packers uh, lost a football game to the evil Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, and um, and the, the, the final score of that game uh, was 19 to 23. Now, those who would cheer for the evil stealers would say, well, look, that was a great win. But you have to know there was only a four-point difference. Only four points. Really, it was a fluke that they won. In fact, I didn't see the game, but I'll bet you it was due to bad roughing. If I, if I you know, I'm sure that would be the case. They might have been victorious. They might have been Nikon, to use the Greek word, but not hyper-Nikon. Not, not, not super Victorious. However, about a week uh, later, in the Euro Cup qualifications—if you don't know what that is—that's the soccer uh, in the in Europe. In that, in one of the qualifications, France beat Gibraltar fourteen to one. No, fourteen to nothing, actually. I think in soccer, in soccer. Now that—that very clearly is an undeniable victory. Victory in that game. That, thats More than conquerors. That's hyper Nikon. And that's the kind of victory, Paul says, that awaits us. You know, we may find ourselves in trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness. We might find ourselves in danger at the tip of a sword or dead. But Paul says, don't worry. Don't worry. We are more than conquerors. In fact, in another place, he says this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Why? Because God is for us. Because he loves us so much. What can separate you from the love of God for you? Paul says, nothing. Nothing in this life, not even death, can separate you from God's love. He says, neither angels nor demons not the most powerful spiritual beings in the universe, not not even the most darkest powers of hell can drag you away from the love that God has for you. He says not the present nor the future, not what has happened in your past or what you have done, not if you have left your wife, abandoned your children, stole from your employer, had an abortion, hated your mother, murdered your father, lived in abject failure as a Christian, nothing your past can separate you from how much God loves you. And nothing that you will do, and you don't know what you all are going to do, nothing that you will do will separate you from how much he loves you. No powers, he goes on to say. Not, Not the power of your career, not the power of money, not the power of fear, not the power of an addiction. There are no powers that can separate you from the love of God for you. And not height, he says, nor depth. There is no place that you can, can flee from his spirit. You can move, go to the highest place, sink to the lowest depth. He still loves you. I mean, you may have been running for God from God for years. But it doesn't change his love for you. I mean, Jesus tells the story of, of, uh, of a father whose son came to him and, and said, look, I want half of the inheritance. In other words, I wish you were dead, dad. Give me my money. And his father gives him the money and he goes off. And every day he squanders it in a faraway land. And every day his father comes to the, to the road and looks down the road waiting to see if his son has, has returned. And on the day when his son has squandered it all and is in desperate need and comes slumping back home, his father sees him down the road and he hikes up his robe and he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and he welcomes him back home, back into the family. He throws a party for him. His love never, ever, ever diminished for that son. God says, neither height nor depth. He says this, nothing, nothing in all of creation, it doesn't matter what you can think of, what you can list, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the conclusion of the matter, Paul says. When he looks at the gospel, when he, he sees its grandeur and its beauty, when he, when he understands And explains clearly what it's all about. Here's the conclusion. God is for you. God loves you so much. You can trust Him. You can lean into Him. You can live into that. You can stand on that. You can live your life fully not ashamed of the gospel, but rather transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and work in your life and at work through you because, because God is for you. Would you bow your heads and let me pray for you? Uh, well, God, our Heavenly Father, I mean, what a great word. God, what what a a brilliant way for Paul to end this passage, this section of of the book of Romans, to conclude the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are for us. God, that you're not against us, that you're not standing up there or sitting up there with your nose turned up judging, telling us good luck, all the best. No, no, God, you're for us in every way. You're for us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. God, may we live in light of that. May there come a strength and a confidence and a joy and a peace in our life, God, as we rest in that, as we let that sink deep, deep into our hearts. that You are for us, that you love us. that You will never let us go. Oh, God. Thank you for your grace in our life. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you for who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us today. I hope you're encouraged. We serve such a good God. Uh, let me send you with these words from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 3 says this. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. that You may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God bless you as you follow after him. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.